the Block Channel. Uh, glad to have everyone back this week. Um, I'm not going to tell you what episode number this is because I don't quite know what episode number this will be. We're going to see where we can sort of segment and fill that in there. Uh, we'll do that in real time, so that'll be a good time. Um, but of course, I'm joined today by my co-host, uh, Dr. Petty and Dimitri Ferguson, a.k.a. D. Uh, gentlemen, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourselves? What's up, guys? Yeah. This is Corey from the Bitcoin Podcast, episode number three. Happy to be here, as always. You called yourself episode number three, by the way, but I am yeah. D, host number two. What <laughs> happens when you read stuff? <laughs> I'm host number two of the Bitcoin Podcast here. Host number two of the Block Channel Podcast, too? I don't know. We, we, I'm here frequently, co-hosting everyone. <laughs> So. Awesome, and and of, and of course we, you know, we're, it wouldn't be a show unless we had a very valuable guest to be on the show with us today. And as always, we are blessed with the guests that we have having in our lineup, and we are joined today by Vlad Samfir, very intelligent gentleman who, of course, I have actually been able to meet in person. Who, so I can verify the claim when I say he's really cool. So I'm really glad he was able to accept the invitation to come on the show. So uh, Vlad, without any further ado. Um, can you just go ahead and give the audience a brief introduction of yourself? Um, just give us an explanation on like your educational background, your 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 research background, how you ended up where you are today, man. Sure. <clears throat> thanks. Thanks a lot, Stephen. Uh, that was awesome. Um, so <laughs> my background is in you know stats. I did like mathematical statistics in like university and like grad school, and then I like dropped out of grad school to like kind of do stats like on the side and then like wait and, and then I got into like crypto um and then, like some some months later I met Vitalik and then I like you know got really got into like this whole ethereum thing uh I started off working on like identity and reputation systems and then started working on like proof of work puzzles and then and then it started move, move working on proof of stake um and like blockchain sharding and, and basically most of my work is like kind of um like blockchain, like security, efficiency, um, scalability. Um, and I have some other work that I kind of, kind of do, uh, like identity system, credential management, access control stuff. I work a little bit on like reputations sometimes. Um, and you know, um, I kind of do like crypto economic stuff a little more generally also. Um, so that's basically like my kind of interest. Number four is this like proof of stake protocol that like uh, we're hoping to deliver for like uh, transition from proof of work to proof of stake for uh, the you know for Ethereum. You feeling good about that transition? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think the transition is like absolutely necessary uh, and like will definitely happen. Um, you know, I mean, we're talking about a dramatic improvement in the efficiency. Uh, and security of blockchain. Hmm. Yeah. Um, basic, basically, like in a number of ways, which you know we don't have to get into right away. Yeah. So you know, so you're a mathematician. I got a little background myself, and so that is that kind of like where you found the passion for the stuff is just because at the very end of the day, all this stuff is basically is basically proven by math and the math makes it so so is that um, how you fell into it 
Mm, not really. I actually came in more from like an economics angle. I've been like kind of learning economics for fun for a really long time. Um, and I've kind of, you know, built up like intuitions about like, you know, economics. Um, and I think that that's what got me really interested in Bitcoin is because it was like something that was both like, you know, the internet and like economics, like kind of like intertwined in like this, like really nice way. Um, and basically, you know, learned about cryptography, distributed algorithms and, uh, in the context of like economics, um, which was, I think, you know, and in a very extremely adversarial setting. So I was also learning about security. Um, mm. it's kind of, <clears throat> so I think I come up kind of both from the economic side and, uh, you know, a little bit of the math, the math thing is just like kind of, kind of a general purpose thing though. It's not really like, like in crypto, I don't do that much math compared to like how much I used to do, say, in statistics. Mm -hmm. I'm doing a lot more kind of economics. Uh, there's still, and right now I'm doing a lot of like formal reasoning, trying to verify protocols and like kind of write proofs and stuff. I've read all your your blogs detailing the history, like the historical background of Casper and proof of stake and where things have gone. And I've I've noticed you more than most tend to keep the idea of incentivization the incentivization scheme of the protocol central to i guess the security of the protocol if you can't get the incentivization scheme right then it's not going to work basically and that has to be scalable yeah um well the I way that i think about it is that like the um the like the, the kind of the only really realistic model for our setting is to assume that there's like it is kind of um you know open market in the context of like the kind of actual global economy which is like kind of kind of highly uh you know power law distributed in terms of like concentration of capital um and like we should kind of like you know assume that the same thing will happen in cryptocurrency and that we'll get the same type of kind of oligopolistic models um and 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 like um so you know i'm a believer in the fact that you know cryptocurrency markets are actually not that competitive and they're actually quite concentrated and people actually engage in a lot of coordination as opposed to independent choice uh and i think that that's like really the context in which you need to reason about these cryptocurrencies in a, in a lot of ways like your mathematics background is just is it, like you said it's a general purpose tool but it's given you the background to conceptualize these scenarios much better than without it. Like for instance, the, the game theory associated with how you build these systems and what assumptions you make in the beginning, such as like people automatically gonna, are, are going to collude and kind of create these oligarchies and how you then make your assumptions to try and disincentive that. It, it's, 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 it's not an easy problem at all to solve and you're spending a lot of time doing it. What would you say is some of like the largest challenges you have for researching it well so i mean the biggest problem is that we're doing it for consensus and consensus is difficult there's a lot more there's a lot of much easier instances of the of the problem um um basically the kind of i the basic thing is that like if the protocol that you're trying to incentivize is objectively verifiable like you can actually objectively check whether they ran the protocol um and uh you're you have a protocol that you're specifically trying to incentivize um, then it's quite easy to build uh, 
you know, tools that really restrict the ability of the oligopolists to do very much. They like really just like have to serve clients, you know, according to some like mechanism that like forces them to give them a good deal or like makes it hard for them to like censor their transaction. So would you say that um, your, your beliefs in, I guess, the balance of crypto economics is what we're calling it. Um, is that sort of how you and Vitalik became friends initially and he sort of invited you to come into this? I am sort of like curious as to like how that meeting happened and how like Vitalik essentially tapped you um, to sort of like, you know, help him build this vision. Can you give us some more insight into that? Well, I mean, I'm at Vitalik at a Bitcoin meetup in Toronto. Um, and, you know, I just kind of like tried to like learn from him for a couple of weeks, but it wasn't like, you know, any kind of notion that I would work for Ethereum or anything or like join Ethereum really. I was get, like getting excited about it. But then at this hackathon, Ethan Buckman and I made this like app. Um, and we came second place in the hackathon after like a mere talkies, like dark market. Mm-hmm. Um, and like that's kind of how we got our foot in the door. And Charles Hoskinson actually tried to like get us to, uh, you know, join the foundation, but he was quickly kind of ousted. Uh, so Ethan and I kind of became volunteers for some months before like Vitalik offered me like a, a thing. After, and that was like after <clears throat> I got into this whole proof of stake business. So are you are you currently like financially independent thanks to the Ethereum Foundation during your research period or or are you still like bootstrapping yourself independently? Well, I mean, I'm pretty independent, but what I would like to do is to like hire people and like have like uh, people who I could like delegate and work with in order to like do things, you know, do more things. So but who knows what's what's that what's going to take like, you know, time and organization. And like, it's not a priority. I was going to say, hey, so I know a lot of your time right now you spend is, is research and proof of stake and, and making sure that's a fluid transition. Um, but if you weren't research and proof of stake, what do you think you'd be doing? Like, what was your passion before Ethereum or, you know, has Ethereum lost its luster or, you know, what, what would you be doing if it weren't hardcore Ethereum, do you think? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I was working on, uh, inference before it was like small sample size inference. Um, and I, like, I would like to go back to that, um, in some, in some way. Um, but Did it's you elaborate on so um, small sample size. Like if you have small sample size, what does it infer? What does the data infer? That kind of thing. Yeah. Basically it's, it's, it's like, you know, um, when you have small sample sizes, a lot of these like, you know, neural network kind of approaches and like, and like kind of these brute force learning approaches don't work and you have to use kind of other types of tools, uh, like hypothesis testing in order to like reason about like how to model, how to model stuff. Um, uh, and it's, uh, you know, it was, it was interesting. I, you know, really enjoyed that research, but, uh, you know, now, now I'm just into blockchains basically. Jeez. It sounds like, oh, I just do rocket science in my free time. It's no, no biggie. No biggie. So what do you, so, so would you consider yourself? Okay. So, so what do you consider yourself? A blockchain researcher, a blockchain analyst, a crypto researcher, yeah. a what sort of, what sort of circle jerk? title would you associate <laughs> with like 
<laughs> oh, I, yeah, I mean, I usually go for I, I, usually, I usually go for researcher. Sometimes I go for analyst. Sometimes I go for architect. Uh, depends on which hat I'm wearing. <laughs> depends yeah, on the size really of the circle, depends. Mackie. Yeah, exactly. Depends on what events. <laughs> so, I mean, so uh, do you feel any sort of like pressure? I mean, obviously, obviously you do feel pressure because you've been very vocal about that with your blog posts and with your with your tweets and things of that nature. Right. So obviously one of the reasons that you're, you know, uh, cautious and the way it seems you are the way you are is because, you know, you want people to remain level headed and to understand like, you know, this is like beta software, like this is iterative, it's gonna come in pieces, uh, you know, don't build a castle on top of it yet, you know, so so like, uh, just give us more insight into that and sort of your ideology behind why you, why you think about Ethereum at its present and where it's going. Well, I mean, I think, uh, I think, you know, crypto is hard, uh, and I think crypto economics is like, you know, also hard uh and, and and basically um there's a lot there's there's a lot of dynamics around a blockchain right there's like this whole ecosystem and um there's also the you know like the technical problems around uh security and scalability and verifying contracts and making sure that contracts do what you expect them to do uh, and so, like, none of this stuff is really that easy, um, and uh, it's all uh, and, and it's all very com- you know. The, and in terms of the ecosystem and the dynamics, it's quite complex. Um, so, you know, uh, uh, that doesn't mean that I'm not optimistic about it. It's just uh, I I totally, uh, you know am devoted to it in like a big way. I mean, like I, I do lots of research on this stuff. Um, but I think a lot of people are kind of like, you know, rushing and building a lot of stuff on it that, you know, will probably have bugs in it and will probably not, you know, do what they expect and then they'll have to fix it. And it's going to be like, not, um, not as easy as people think. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's definitely but, this, you know, this marriage of many, many different tech fields into one and we're kind of stepping into new boundaries when we build things on top of it and when something breaks inevitably how to fix it isn't going into looking at the manual there's no there's no guide especially when a foundational piece people yeah people think it's like making a web app when it's really more like security engineering Definitely. Systems engineering approach is, is very important here um, to ensure that all the plugs and everything is are, are handled. So 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 let's talk about um, let's talk about the idea of things being built on top of Ethereum for a moment, because I know you advise quite a few um, companies in the Ethereum space, um, one being uh, WeTrust, who we previously had on the show. Um, uh, do you want to highlight any uh, sort of Ethereum-related companies who are like doing things right? Maybe as far as like governance or just uh, developer, I guess, cautiousness, or just you know, what are what are some what are some good reputable companies or individuals who are doing things right that we should look to? No, oh, I mean that's a tough <clears throat> that's a tough question. I mean, I, I personally like you know I don't actually advise many companies, and we trust. I'm just a, a, a escrow agent. Um, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, I don't have that much visibility into what most people are doing. I, I see, uh, you know, I see people being a lot more cautious after the DAO than before in terms of having back doors and making sure, or like, you know, uh, escape hatches, uh, as they call them, uh, in order to make sure that like, you know, if something goes wrong, some like kind of administrator could like rescue all the funds. Um, and, and ba but basically what you're seeing is these like, you know, great, big, ambitious, like hardcore 500,000 line contracts. Um, which is like you know super duper cool from the point of view of like mechanism design and what's possible um but to actually make sure that there's no bugs is uh you know uh harder than people think and also it's like a, a much more public process than when you make when you have bugs in like some you know software that you have like locally that hurts me yeah. thinking about a contract that's that long debugging process that makes me feel bad <laughs> Yeah. And it's not necessarily like this is this stuff isn't really cool. Um, you know, it's absolutely really cool. Um, but the 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 thing the thing that like I'm worried about is basically uh the kind of you know scalability and also um other kind of uh you know governance considerations, right? So in your mind, based based on like those two things, uh do you feel like other blockchains are just missing the point altogether. Is Ethereum the one that's maybe looking at the problems, the current like problems on the horizon, the correct way, or like going in the right going the right direction for a solution? And other ones are kind of missing the point. Or are there other projects out there that maybe are working on different consensus layers that have that have merit? Have you have you looked into any of yeah, the research I mean... other, other, other than what you're currently doing with POS and Casper? Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I've, I, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty aware of like, you know, the, what most of the big projects are doing in the space and, and like basically my, uh, you know, my real feeling is that like proof of stake and sharding are like the way to like really fundamentally scale the blockchain and that, uh, payment channels and state channels really only provide a constant factor improvement. And, um, they turn like censorship failures into safety failures. Because you can like steal from so you know netting without settlement networks if settlement is impossible for one of the parties, um, uh, due to just a liveness problem like you know censorship. Um, so, um, you know I, I I you know like I'm I'm much more optimistic about Ethereum's roadmap than any other blockchain's roadmap at the moment because it's. You know, it has like the, the the things that I like see, which is basically like you know security deposit based proof of stake and uh, sharding. Sharding, by the way, is like basically when you have a bunch of blockchains running concurrently, and there's like a protocol that they use in order to maintain consistency properties across their state. So basically, you know, it, it's scaling out rather than up. Yeah, not, not all like, blockchain. You know, not not every point. node in the network has the entire blockchain. So yeah, yeah, you just uh, if you're a full node, you only if you're like a validator, you're only responsible for knowing the things on your blockchain. I definitely agree with and, with those two ideas as being kind of the the proper way or or, or most feasible way currently to, to to scale the network, and not something that's kind of trivially trivi trivially scaling, but massively scaling the network to where we can actually have this, you know, quote unquote massive adoption that we all seek. 
in, in yeah, so flat. And, and that know. scaling is a, is a big problem, right? Yeah. And and we kind of see this, we kind of saw this in Bitcoin too, and we see it in Ethereum also, where basically the um, commercial interest has far outpaced the academic understanding. Um, academia is still catching up with, you know, what Bitcoin is. Um, there's like lots of papers constantly being written, you know, um, about like, you know, proof of work puzzles and these like blockchain consensus protocols. And then like, you know, usually what happens in the world is like the academic like research communities will understand something for many, many years before industry will pick up on it. Um, and here we kind of have this swap where basically I think there's like a, um, you know, much more interest in using the technology than there is capability on the other side to, uh, uh, you know, service as many transactions per second. I'm sorry, I'm going to go ahead and just slip in here. I didn't know if one of you guys were about to ask an, uh, another question. Um, but but I wanted to ask this very quickly, Vlad. Um, so you know we were we were talking about earlier about um, like self independence as far as like you know being self funded as like a researcher, right? Um, and then but also talking about um, you know rational exuberance and making sure that uh, you know the commercial side of things and traders and things like that like don't get in ahead of themselves. Uh, when do you think would be a good time and or window? for maybe someone like an institution or something like that that had plans to build on the Ethereum public chain, when do you think it's a good time period to start looking into that? Would you, or would you say it would make sense to start looking now? Well, I mean, it depends on like how you want to use it, right? Um, if so, you know, if you're going to make a proof of concept, that's cool. If you're going to use it in a way where if it doesn't do what you expect, it's fine, then that's cool. Um, if you are going to do it like you're going to rely mission critically on something built on Ethereum, um, you know, you should probably spend a lot of care to make sure that like it's secure because it's a very uh, adversarial environment. And I mean, do you feel like, do you feel like there's a lot of people out there who are just sort of like haphazardly doing like, or is this just sort of just something you just want to say as like a blanket statement? Or do you actually feel there are a lot of people out there that aren't doing their due diligence? Um, I mean, it, I mean, um, it's just hard, right? I don't think people realize how hard it is. Here's an interesting take on that, like a, a kind of a question. As educators, there's a lot of us, you know, with the podcast, we try and educate others on what the state of the technology is, how it works, what they should be thinking about, so on and so forth. What is the, like, what's the main idea we should be putting forth about how to interact and get started with this technology like is, is there something that most people who are educating are missing when they try and teach other people about the technology and what they should be excited about what they should start getting into what they should look for uh, the timeline in which they should expect real world applications being used by everyday people well i mean so i mean there's a, there's a lot of those there's a lot of questions some yeah. <laughs> of them, I think, you know, have answers like on an individual basis, um, like the like the ones that are like what you should look for, or what you know you should how you should use it, because it's you know this general purpose, uh, and like you know you can use it in however you want. Um, but then there was like the oh, another last question about scalability, which is something that's quite a lot more concrete, um, and something that we like you know understand more or less. So basically, like miners can change the gas limit. Uh, in order to raise the amount of gas per block, 
Um, and you know, we, and then there's like the idea of like using off chain transactions and like those, you know, kind of more, there's like a type of optimi different types of optimizations that you can use in designing your applications to like use less gas. And there's also this like whole, um, sharding thing. And I suppose that people are going to come out with side chains as well. So like, there's lots of things that people are going to do for, for scaling. Uh, and it's all, you know, possible. Um, some of them, some of the, some of them are more technically complicated than others. Um, uh, so, uh, but depending on, so depending on your application, the scalability aspect will be different amounts of time off. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, but, you know, um, the, the thing that is really cool about blockchain and about like Ethereum in specific is that it like really lets you think about mechanism design in a, an environment where it's really cheap to deploy incentive mechanisms to, to, uh, you know, basically have like, you know, really cheap, uh, creation of marketplaces of automated market makers of all sorts of different types of, um, tools for coordination that, um, uh, usually would be much more expensive and difficult to deploy. So, you know, I think Ethereum is definitely useful. Uh, I think it's just hard to use, uh, safely, uh, at the moment, but you know, uh, where we are getting a lot better, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, definitely I hope the increase in the size of the community will mean more people participating in working on these technologies and making them, you know, e easier to use from the point of view of the tool chain. Yeah, I actually have, I have a, I have a quick question, a quick aside here, because, you know, you see, you have a good, you have a good perspective with what's going on here in Ethereum and you've been in this space a while. So I'm just going to go ahead and ask you this question because there are Bitcoiners that listen in to this show, of course. So uh, do you have any, um, thoughts on uh the current issues as far as like bitcoin and their current what seems to be governance related issues and social contract related issues when it comes to their future protocol design do you have any thoughts that you would want to share on oh, that yeah i would have i have lots of thoughts about these these topics um and i would love to share them <laughs> so um my perspective is you know really that um you know, from a, like in, in a really like fundamental point of view, um, miners are the biggest source of risk to the protocol. Uh, miners are the people who have uh, rights on the protocol level to do things like reverse transactions, censor transactions, uh, and and basically undermine user guarantees. Uh, and also, they are in the case of proof of work, very highly paid. And also they have a very strong incentive to participate in the governance process in order to uh, maintain that flow of income. Um, mm -hmm. So I think, you know, um, the, 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 the protocol itself has created this class of people who, and, and combined with like the kind of ideology around proof of work that the longest chain is this like holy thing. Um, it, it has, has led to this position where miners are like basically in charge and trying to get as much power as possible when really, um, I think the people who need to be represented and to be the people who, for who shop software changes need to be made are for the users, right? Like I imagine a future where miners are desperately competing over transaction fees in order to offer people the lowest cost possible 
um, at the you know at the highest amount of throughput possible. Um, I, I don't want miners to be you know super uh, like you know I don't want I don't want to I don't want to create this like oligopolistic market where miners are like raking in the dough at the expense of the like broader community. You know I want them to be operating to serve clients uh, as much as possible. Um, so like my my perspective about this. Um, and is that like the biggest source of risk to cryptocurrency is miners and Bitcoin, we've really seen this to the fullest extent where it's just impossible to disenfranchise miners in crypto in Bitcoin today. Um, in, uh, in Ethereum, that's also another thing, something that I'm worried about, especially with the price, price increase is like miners are getting paid much more now. Uh, and that means they're going to spend more effort trying to make sure that their interests are represented, but their interests are actually contrary to the interests of users and and like other participants in the network. Um, and so it's not a very pretty story. Um, uh, and, and so that's kind of like, you know, my two cents on the matter. Um, I treat like validators, like in the same, in the same kind of regard. And basically like probably the main reason that I feel this way is because like, when I think about like security guarantees of blockchains, uh, you know, it's always the miners that undermine them. So, so it sounds to me, um, from from what you're saying, is the Bitcoin in its current present form, and maybe just in the short term in the future, is just fundamentally broken. Um, that's kind of like what this sounds like, and it sounds to me well, like it's, without it's, like it's a stuck very on, it's it's stuck on proof of work. Yeah, it's stuck so on you... proof of work. That's 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 a. Uh... I mean, to, there, are, there are hardcore people out there that will argue on that and say that, you know, there's a way to, like, incentivize proof of work correctly in order for this thing to, like, pan out. But, like, I guess, and maybe in your vision, like, how would you feel if one day, you know, Ethereum, you know, made it successfully switched over to proof of stake? Uh, how would you feel if Bitcoin, and this is a crazy question, ever switched over to your version of Casper proof of stake? Oh, you know, obviously that would make you really happy. Um, but I don't, you know, ever expect that to happen. We've talked about this before on, uh, on our show. Is is that like the the reason why people back proof of work so much is because currently, as as blockchain technology goes, it's the only consensus layer that we have that works for a completely open, trustless network. And that doesn't mean it's the only consensus layer that can exist. And that can't scale. It's just the only one where we have verifiable like experience and time and like time tested amount of knowledge that it works. At least until like the functionality of where, where Bitcoin stands now. Yeah. But, so basically the way that I would describe it is like, you know, as long as you make sure that more than half the hash power is honest, then uh and the network is not too crazy in terms of asynchrony, then uh Bitcoin will work. Yeah. Um but you do really need to make sure that half the hash power is honest. And that, as as the, the technology uh, moves, the hardware board. moves, is becoming a more and more of a harder issue. Um, yeah, I mean, it's more concentrated the, the fewer competitive async manufacturers there are. But are but, they encouraged to be honest? Um, by the structure and the no. underlying game theory <laughs> no, aspects in there? No, 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 no. That's only true if you assume that half are honest, right? If you if you are willing to uh, let more than half deviate together in a coalition, the incentives are for them to 
do double spends and censorship because they immediately benefit. Um, you know, imagine if you have like two thirds of the miners in a coalition, they could censor the rest of the blocks from the other third, and then they get a 50% raise in terms of block rewards after difficulty readjustment. Um, and 50% increase in revenues is a lot, right? And then like while you're at it, you know, you might as well take some bribes from Interpol, censor some transactions. Um, the incentives are not very, are, are actually like for uh, deviation against the user's guarantees. Uh, sorry, against the user's like, you know, expectations. The, the kind of like reason why um, it hasn't happened in my opinion is because the Bitcoin community has managed to somehow keep the incentives of miners aligned with the more broad community. So you don't think there'd be enough people like myself with loud voices in the community to say, hey, there's some collusion going on between the miners. Let's just stop using Bitcoin altogether and totally devalue their revenue stream. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that I would necessarily devalue it. I mean, uh, I think that, like, you know, depending on like who's using Bitcoin, why, um, you know, I could totally imagine a future where it's it becomes censored. Yeah. You, you know, but, so but that's because like uh, that's because like I spend a lot of time analyzing failure modes in cryptocurrency, right? Mm -hmm. So what are all these conditionals that need to take place for proof of work to be essentially broken from the beginning? Because oh. that's that's simply, I mean, I that mean, sounds it, like it amounts to having like fifty-one percent attacks, right? Say what now? Just a fifty-one percent attack thing. I think you're you're either breaking out or you're saying a word that I've never even remotely heard before. The fifty-one percent attack. Attack. Uh, you're gonna need to elaborate on that. So I don't, I don't think I've ever heard the, that before. The, you know the fifty-one percent attack. Oh, that's what you're saying. Okay, so it was breaking up. Okay, yeah. <laughs> what about? I mean, so we haven't had it yet. Don't worry. About it sounded it. like you were saying sin attack. It sounded like you said sin attack. I was like, that's not a thing. <laughs> That's that's not a thing. Yeah, um, I mean, like that, that's, that's, that's basically I mean, that's, <laughs> that's 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 the biggest uh, that's the that's the biggest concern, you know, as far as I'm concerned. So would you say the the, the ability that to, that Bitcoin has had to keep the incentivization or the, the miners aligned with the users is because of the I don't want to say lack of adoption, but lack of adoption, like because the network hasn't grown to such a large scale, they're able to kind of unify behind. Like the original ideologies of that, that Bitcoin started with, or so um, like if if the, and, if the community yeah. grew way too big, then that those those intense symptoms will change as outward kind of pressures start to push on them. Yeah, and and there's also the the fact that kind of people and like miners included still you know speculate on the price of Bitcoin. Um, if imagine if it was if Bitcoin was like an established thing with a stable price, then like miners would be operating more like a kind of business that isn't so exposed to the price of Bitcoin. Uh, and then they would have like less of an incentive, you know, because of the price of Bitcoin and more incentives just due to the fact of the incentives of the protocol and, you know, everyone who might be offering them bribes. We need a bribe ometer. <laughs> bribe ometer. Yeah. That's what we need. Yeah, make well, that I mean, well, if, if you take, if you take it out, all the way like if you as time approaches infinity right if everybody's massively adopted bitcoin and it's still running and the miners are only subsidized by fees there is no more perk 
of new Bitcoin coming into the system that has got a hefty value to it, then yeah, but, but you, you can, but you set, you can censor to get more fees too. Miners can collude. There's gonna have to hike the fee. There's gonna have to be governance outside of code to make sure that the miners are honest, and that's just gonna have to be the way the cookie crumbles exactly. because everybody. No, is, I completely agree. Because everybody's gonna be taking on their regular lives and doesn't give a damn about miners, so the miners have this ultimate control over the system. There's gonna have to be somebody with really really shiny guns saying, "Hey, you better act right." Or there's going to be consequences. I mean, that's just going to have to what it boils down to, because they have a yeah. lot of power. Yeah, and I think that's like you know that's that's basically you know what it must be already. Um, so we and, need and, to. But that's from my kind of that's kind of my cynical worldview, right? But but, mm -hmm. but you know, I think that's right. I think that like the, the there's like a, this kind of there's this kind of duality between like the the protocol's assumptions and the thing the community needs to guarantee outside the protocol. I, like the current the for the for the protocol the community needs to guarantee the protocol's assumptions in order to enjoy the protocol's guarantees. Um, and in Bitcoin, it's like you know this, um, uh, you know the network isn't too asynchronous, and the fifty-one percent attack sorry 50, more than half are honest. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in the kind of in the best case. We need a Lord of the Rings type situation. We need spread power amongst the globe. Um, yeah, we're gonna. We just need to divide the Bitcoin blockchain into five rings. <laughs> we need to divide Bitcoin into five rings and have one, one ring. One to the East devs, one to the Monero devs, one to the Zcash devs. It would be five rings. This tech, this talk just got power, so though. much nerdier. <laughs> well, I don't. I think it got less nerdier actually. That's what I mean. <laughs> got more cool um it's interesting well consensus at the very end of the day consensus is a mother fucker i mean that, that's that basically is what i've come to the conclusion is that it's just tough well humans are hard distributed systems that's what it comes down to it's like having a ton of humans agree on a, on, on a single thing or like even just a ton of disparate people across like physically long ranges agree on a single piece of data is a hard idea and to do it automatically and incentivize players to play by the rules properly automatically is even harder and we're just now getting to like the limits of what we know about that and people like Vlad are trying to push that limit and come up with better ideas that, that make it work even better well speaking of uh Pushing the limit and raising expectations. Well, I'm, I'm hit you a curveball question here. So for, for young people looking to get in the game, and you said that you're looking to have people work for you to delegate and stuff like that. What kind of advice? What kind of advice would you give them, you know, that resonates internally with you, you know? Um, always do what you're told. Uh, stay in school. <laughs> Stay in school, kids. This shit's weak. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, that's, uh, Don't do drugs. Stay in school. No, I'm, I'm, I'm joking. You know, uh, a better advice might be something like, don't ever let anyone tell you uh, how you're experiencing the world, and like, know what you know, and kind of don't question your sanity while you're trying to think clearly. Um, and then you know, reason from first principles: don't rely on the authority of others. That is an that interesting soundbite right there. Don't question your sanity while you're trying to think clearly. 
I like that. I like that. It's cool. So I, I, I wanted to sneak one more thing in there real quick, and then we'll close this up. Because um, I'm going to throw this into the title of the show. Uh, can you tell us real quickly what is an absurdist troll for the audience so they know who you know more about who you are as a person, Vlad? Because I've met you in person, and my first thought when talking to you after about about five minutes, I was like, this guy, he's funny. I can like him. So I want to know, tell tell the people, what is an absurdist troll, and why are you the way you are? Well, I mean, so the absurdist and, and troll are two different things. Um, I would say a troll is someone who, like, engages with someone, but, like, rather than, like, buying into their frame, kind of, like, you know, tries to, like, pull on their, like, assumptions without, like, you know, get them necessarily catching on to kind of, like, you know, get them to, like, go in a certain direction that they're not necessarily intending. Uh, it's kind of like this, uh, it's, it's like, it's like, it's like a, oh, it's a way, it's like a, a to me, it's like a kind of like Socratic method. Um, um, and then the, the, the absurdism thing is, is a, is a separate thing, uh, which is basically, um, it's kind of this, um, philosophy that, you know, focuses on, uh, and like, like how to deal with the absurd, uh, and the absurd is kind of any context where um, your effort is like self-defeating, where like the fact that you're trying is like making your success less likely, um, uh, and and kind of uh, understanding that like the world, some aspects of it are absurd, and some that are like reasonable, and then uh, and kind of trying to like find the right the right kind and amount of trying. So ultimately find the right balance that makes you comfortable with being you. Uh, in the context of like an absurd world. Got it. Got it. I love it. I love it. It's deep. It's deep. I got to put that on a card somewhere. Like yeah. just flat Zamfir things. <laughs> 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 well, 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 thank you. Thank you, Vlad, for coming on. And thanks for, um, thanks for sharing us like, what's going on in your mind as far as consensus goes and Ethereum and, the path forward for scaling for uh, Ethereum, which I'm sure has been, uh, you know, on everyone's mind. And it's nice to read blog posts. It's nice to, um, you know, read white papers and things of that nature. But sometimes it's nice to just hear humanized discussion about the topics and to just sort of like see what's ailing you so we can get a clear idea as to sort of where this is going in the future. And so thank you for taking the time to uh, chat with us today. We really appreciate it. Hey, cheers. It's my pleasure. Yeah, I was glad to shit on the miners. Uh, and oh, I'm get to do that. Right. <laughs> glad. Well, if you ever want to shit on some miners anymore, just let us know. You're welcome back anytime. Great. All right. Thanks, Vlad. Have a good day. See you guys. This episode of Block Channel was brought to you by CryptoDex. CryptoDex specializes in marketing and consulting for individuals who are seeking to raise funds in the crypto space via token launch. Their service can assist with tokenization structures, marketing, and building long-term sustainable communities for your individual token. If you're interested in learning more, check out the links to their service in the show notes below.